Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the one who has given us your word in such clear terms that anyone can read and understand that you are for your people, that you have pursued a people for yourself, that you have loved us, and that in Jesus Christ you have given us everything that we need for uh, restoring that relationship with you that was broken because of our sin. We thank you, Father, that there are uh, many uh, facets to this salvation and that we can indeed and will indeed spend all of our lives both on this side of glory and in the next uh, understanding and plumbing the depths of what it is that you've done for us and who you are and your kindness and, great, and, and grace. And so we pray, Lord, as we continue working through the uh, Shorter Catechism that you would continue to give us these deeper insights, not simply so that we walk out of here knowing more about these things, but especially, Father, so that we walk out of here loving you more as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, folks, just a couple of things before we launch into this. Uh, just by um, way of announcement, next week is Reformation Sunday, and, you know, we normally do something special on Reformation Sunday. Uh, and this particular Sunday, we're going to be looking at Martin Luther, and that shouldn't be too much of a surprise, seeing as... Um, Reformation usually uh, has a lot to do with Luther. And uh, anyway, what, uh, where I want to go with that is just to say that we're going to be showing a video. Normally we'll do you know, a short lecture or something of that nature. But there's this really, really good documentary that um, came across, came out in 2017 at the 500th anniversary of the, uh, the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg. And uh, anyhow, that was um, um, released in 2017. I don't think we've ever shown it here in this church because I don't think we've looked at Luther for our Reformation Sunday since 2017. I don't think we had it in time for that uh, Luther 500 uh, as we were looking at it. Anyway, uh, it's done by PBS, and what's amazing is that it's good while it's done by PBS. Um, It's not perfect, but it's pretty close. So anyhow, uh, we're going to be showing that, but it's a little long. It's two parts. So we're going to be showing it here in Sunday school, part one. And then the second part will be after the service when we do our meal and all that other stuff. So um, our Sunday school is variable. Uh, In about 10 minutes, more people will show up and, you know, that kind of thing. So we will have to be making that announcement. If you want to watch it, people are going to have to be here on time. But all right. Let's get back to the Shorter Catechism, folks. We are looking uh, at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I know that most of you have that memorized, uh, or at least it's in your shirt pocket. If not, you might want to grab your Trinity hymnal, and you'll find there the Shorter Catechism. Uh, We should be roughly around page 570, 571, because we're looking at question 36 today. We're up to 72. Okay, we've made it all the way up to page 872, so we're making progress, folks. Question 36 on page 872. And if you look up here before we read that, what we've been doing uh, in the catechism is looking at what's called the order of salvation. And for those of you who like to follow all those theological terms in Latin, the ordo salutis just means the order of salvation. The, uh, we've, we've first looked at what it is that Jesus accomplished for us when he died, and we call that our redemption accomplished But this is when the Holy Spirit comes and applies that redemption. What it is that Jesus did for us on the cross is applied to us in a particular moment in time 
in our lives. In other words, Jesus accomplished our salvation by his substitutionary life and death 2,000 years ago, but in due time, the Spirit comes into our lives, and as we've said, he calls us, regenerates us, that we're able to respond to the call of the gospel. We then exercise faith and repentance, what is commonly called conversion. God then justifies us, that is, declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ, not our own. Because we are now righteous, he adopts us into his family and makes us one of his children. Holy Spirit then continues a work in us to make us what he declared us to be. He declared us righteous in sanctification. He begins to change our actual uh, behavior, our actual nature, so that we become more and more like Christ. And glorification, which we have yet to look at. Uh, We're not going to look at it today, but we stopped here. Uh, glorification is that perfection that occurs when we go to the Lord in glory or he returns and raises us uh, all together. But uh, basically, this is the order of salvation in which the Spirit applies uh, that redemption to us. And it's not something that is done, you know, like over a period of time. This is more of a logical order rather than a temporal one, if that makes sense. The obvious exception being you know, right here in our sanctification, which is a lifelong process. So that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Today's question at first looks like it breaks away from that, but if you look at the question very carefully, you're going to see something rather interesting. So we're going to do like we've done before. I'm going to ask you to read the question and the answer, and then we're going to have some scripture passages to look at. But would somebody just go ahead, and, if you don't mind, and read question 36 along with the answer. All right, thank you so much. Okay, so you can see what the writers of the Catechism are doing. They're saying that in the process of our salvation being applied to us, these steps where we're called and then we are experience a new birth, right? This allows us to be able to respond. And then once we respond in faith and repentance, there are these three things that are benefits as it's put there, of our salvation, our justification, where we are declared righteous in the sight of God, our adoption, where we really are brought into his family, and sanctification, where we are conformed increasingly to the image of Christ. It tells us that those benefits are accompanied by some other benefits. It even uses the word that accompanies or flows from them. There are certain things then that come from this. And those are all wrapped up for us. Uh, Let's go ahead and write those down in the answer. Uh, The first one it says is, let's see, maybe we'll use red over here. Assurance, assurance of God's love. Uh, Next one, is it uh, peace? Yep, peace of conscience and joy in the spirit. Yep, joy. And then increase of grace and perseverance. Let's just say grace. So all five of these, then, are things that actually do not stand on their own, but actually flow out from these other benefits that we get in the so-called order of salvation. Now, before we go much further, every one of these on on the left side had one or even sometimes two catechism questions given over, and, you know, would explain those in detail. These five all get lumped into just one catechism question. And you might say, well, are they not really that important? The the thing to point out just before we get too deep into this is 
<clears throat> these are things that are absolutely necessary for salvation. They must happen. There is no salvation for us if we're not justified, if we're not adopted, if we're not sanctified. Assurance, peace, joy, grace, and perseverance are things that flow from these, and at different times, you may have them and you may not have them. They're more on the subjective side. They're real benefits. They're real things that you experience as a Christian, but they are, uh, let me put it this way, while they, uh, I don't want to say that they're not, well, I guess I do want to say they're not necessary for salvation. You, they are necessary for your Christian life. They will be in your Christian life. You will have them at different times, but it's not on the same level as something like this, that if one of these is missing, then, then the whole thing hangs together. So that's why they kind of lump these together and deal with them in one shot because they really are the, um, uh, I don't want to call it auxiliary or subsidiary but, or even secondary, but they are the things that flow out to use their own catechism language that flows out from, accompanies these others. So let's go ahead and jump into these. I'm going to ask you to look up some passages as we go through them. Could somebody look up Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2? And somebody else look up Proverbs 4.18. Proverbs 4.18 and uh, Romans 5, 1 through 2. Okay, while we're at it, go ahead and just read number five if you can, verse five as well. All right, so there you actually get in that one uh, passage, you get your assurance, you get your peace, you get your joy all mentioned in, in that one. How about Proverbs 4.18? Who's got that? All right, and that one um, is a sort of uh, more poetic way of putting it, but it talks about the increase of grace that we experience more and more. And then there is one more that we're going to be looking at, and this is going to be sort of a central. Let's see, how many times are we going to use that today? We're going to use it enough times that, um, yeah, I think we want to write it up here. So let's all look up this one, 2 Peter 1.10. And I'll have somebody read that, but this is going to be sort of like the uh, motif verse for today. 2 Peter 1.10. Can I have somebody read that as well? All right. So here we are. We're being called to be diligent in our call, in our election. We're supposed to pursue it. And uh, this, this relates to perseverance. Actually, it relates to a few more things, as we're going to see in just a moment. Uh, perseverance is going to be a key one in, in terms of all these different um, benefits that we receive. So let's go ahead and jump in, and let's take a look at the first one, the assurance of the love of God. Now, Again, as I said at the very outset, what we're dealing with here is subjective. And there is a sense in which you can say assurance is objective. You can pick up the Bible and you can read in the Scripture where it clearly says that if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are saved. And that salvation is uh, not going to be removed from you. And so you can read that objectively. It doesn't necessarily mean that you feel it. And at times we do feel it, at times we don't feel it, but you can always look it up objectively and say, all right, it's there, I can actually see it. We're talking here more of the subjective aspect where the person really does feel that God does love him or love her. And unfortunately, this is one of those things that true believers, we're not talking about people who believe themselves to be Christians, uh, but may not be in actuality. We're talking about true believers do not always have assurance. And this is perhaps something that you yourself have experienced or you know someone, uh, a friend or a family member, and it's a lot more common than we let on. And uh, one of the, I think, if I can just make a pastoral comment on the side, 
It's easily one of the things that we most deal with in terms of shepherding. And just for us, you know, the average person in the pew, when we're thinking, you, know, you might say, well, that's just for pastors to deal with. But in our churches, you know, you've heard me say here again and again that this church and any church will become unleashed when we drop our masks. And so often in church, you know, we're expected to just be able to come in with a smiley face and everything's fine in my salvation and everything is great. And, uh, and you know, we never really, uh, I shouldn't say never, but we don't seem to allow space for people to express their doubts and their concerns and their hurts and all these other things. And assurance is one of those. And so you may very well have a neighbor right here in church today, you know, that as you uh, interact with people and talk with people who are very much wrestling with the fact, does God really love me? Does he uh, care for me? Is he providing and shepherding me like he seems to be doing for all you other happy people? You know, and that's something that something something that we ought to be uh, just aware of as we deal with our brothers and sisters. This is a lot more common, I guess, is where I'm going with this than one might think. So, assurance is something that not everyone has, um, and every situation is going to be different. But there do seem to be seem to be general categories for why people tend to lack assurance. Uh, one of those is a person who was a new believer may simply not know that it is possible to know that. This is not uncommon. Sometimes you'll hear new believers say, I absolutely am convinced, I feel the love of God, but others may sit there and say, I'm so excited about this, but is God really gonna be with me? Is he gonna stay? They don't know that those things are things that you can know and can feel. And that's why you have passages like Second <clears throat> Peter 1.10, that tells you to be diligent in pursuing and looking at your, you know, as it says, making your calling and election sure. It calls us to that because the scripture recognizes that we could very well be in a position where we don't feel those things and, and wants us to be able to enjoy that, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, let's have somebody look up a passage. Uh, let's look up two passages. Let's have one person look up 1 John 5.13 and another Hebrews 6.11, these are also passages that speak about assurance. 1 John 5.13 and Hebrews 6.11. And again, these are things that are in Scripture to tell us you really can know about your assurance. And um, again, there may be a young believer who just didn't know that was even possible. Who's got uh, 1 John 5.13? Margaret Ann? Okay, so here's John saying, I'm gonna spell out what the gospel is, these things concerning Jesus, with the express purpose that you may in fact know that eternal life is yours. So it, it's a calling in that respect to assurance. How about Hebrews 6.11? All right, so here the author of Hebrews is calling us very much like Peter to exercise diligence to pursue, and we're gonna talk about how we do that, in such a way that you can have full assurance that God is indeed for you and not against you. So how do we do that? What do you think is the way that we pursue our calling? How do we uh, uh, make our calling and election sure? What can you be doing that will move you in those directions? You're talking to this new believer and they're asking, do I really, you know, does God really love me? I mean, I did all the right things and I'm Excited about Jesus? What would you tell that person? Okay, so get in the word. Pursue that relationship with God and have him 
speak to you in the word, absolutely. And that, that is first and foremost. So the continual reading, it's one of the reasons why we also ourselves have to continually read, stay in scripture. Because as we, you know, it, it, as it fills our minds, as it shapes us, then this assurance will come, as you see again and again and again. The examples, the stories, the reassurances that God is for you. Uh, what else could we possibly do? Yep, so in other words, not just read it and walk away saying, I understand it better, but actually begin to live it out. Now, there's two ways in which we can do that uh, or, or that helps to do that. What are some other things that we could be doing? Praying, that's right, you know, actually speaking with the Lord, asking him for that assurance, asking him, or just, you know, as we interact with him, and we bring our just day-to-day needs, and we see him answering those and so on. All those things work towards our assurance. And then one last thing that we can do is what we do right here, which is worship and fellowship, the gathering of the saints, other people supporting one another, encouraging one another, bearing up one another's burdens, all those things together. You know, when, when uh, and you've all seen it, when you hear of a neighbor who has uh, a tragedy in their lives, and they're unbelievers. And, you know, for so many people, they have absolutely no community. All they've got is the people at work who, you know, many of them they're at odds with or in competition with or, you know, where do they go when, uh, you know, when they lose a child? Where do they go when they get the diagnosis of cancer and so on? The believer who is here constantly surrounded by those who love him and love her and take care of her and provide for him and so on, those things become means by which, oh yes, God does love me and he uses the saints for doing that. So uh, yes, things like reading the word in our devotions, praying, pursuing, taking those things and applying them and you know, trying to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word, having the encouragement, admonition and all those different things that brothers and sisters provide, all those are the ways in which you can, be, you can indeed be diligent to make your calling and election Sure, yes. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So um, when Luther, and, and actually much more so Calvin, uh, the Institutes talks about no salvation outside of the church, uh, just briefly on that, because, um, yeah, it is a whole reformational topic. Uh, they get it from, from Paul, uh, who speaks of the church as our mother. And you hear that and you think, that's Roman Catholic, run away, run away, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, all that simply means is that um, God actually ordained the church, a body of believers, as the vehicle that he uses first to bring people into a relationship with him and then to sustain and nurture that relationship with him. It never happens outside the church. Now, you might sit there and say, well, what about the person who's stuck on a desert island and, right, and a deserted island? And and then, you know, they just have a copy of the New Testament. You know, the, the, okay, how did they get that copy of the New Testament? You know, the Gideons gave it to him. And so so the, the, the point is God uses preachers and Christian neighbors and all this to bring people to himself, and he continues to use those same people to sustain and, 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 and encourage. And that includes in our topic today things like our ongoing assurance and our ongoing nurture and, and you know, those sorts of things. Um, so yes, absolutely. All right. So, common case scenario. First, uh, uh, just ask any question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, given our society, I can see why people want to get away from others. 
uh, you know, we, we get that. Uh, but the point that we're getting at here is, yeah, it's impossible to nurture your faith. I'm not trying to say that you don't have an aspect of, of your individual pursuit of the faith. We all do. And yes, you can find yourself isolated, and there are examples of people who are taken as prisoners of war, or people who are obviously find themselves in isolated locations who cry out to the Lord and pursue that. But those people all had prior experiences that brought them to faith. And it wasn't that they were walking down the street, you know, singing, do what did he? Okay, sorry, I couldn't help myself once we start that. But, you know, they're not just walking down the street and all of a sudden they just, they've never heard the gospel, they've never, you know, experienced a Christian, and all of a sudden they just, and they're a Christian. You know, that doesn't happen. It always happens through people who are Christians, bringing the word, applying the word, nurturing that person, and so on. So a case like that would be irregular. And in reality, it would be wrong if a person pursues that with the intent of saying, just me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. So, okay. So the first case scenario that we're dealing with here is the new believer who does not uh, even know that you can have assurance. The other scenario that's pretty common is the believer who has had assurance a number of different times uh, in his life, but then he or she begins to, you know, do some things that they ought not to do, and they, uh, they, they get involved in something that they should not be doing and get wrapped up in, you know, walking away from the things of the Lord for a while. And because of those things, they lose their assurance. And that is also very, very common. Uh, think of someone like David. If somebody will look up Psalm 51, you know, this is David's penitential psalm when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba didn't want to be found out when it turns out that she was pregnant. So he has her husband brought in with the intent that hope, because he was out at war fighting the battles for them, so calls him in with the intent that he'll hopefully sleep with his wife and therefore it'll seem like it's his child. Uh, But he's doing the honorable thing and he says, I'm not gonna enjoy being with my wife as long as my men are out in the field so he doesn't sleep with her. Now he's stuck, and the only thing he can do, David feels, is put him in the front lines in a dangerous position so that he is purposefully killed, and that way he can marry um, Bathsheba and, uh, and so on. Well, this is all quite evil. I mean, this is deception. This is abuse of power. And that's in addition to the obvious adultery and murder. So this is all pretty bad. And this is David, the man who, uh, uh, who God said was pursuing him with his whole heart, you know, that, that kind of thing, um, which is, you know, it does happen to believers. We can uh, get involved in evil activities, and it's not uncommon at that point for the person to lose assurance. So if somebody's got Psalm 51, would you read verses 8 and 12? Verses 8 and 12. Did I just lose? Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, So you notice what he's saying here. He's not saying restore my salvation, restore the joy of my salvation, which we'll get to here a little bit. But he's going through that period where, you know, the gladness, the joy, the assurance, all that's dropped out because of his deep sin. Now, he himself, you know, God never forsakes us. You know, all those whom God has worked in and done all this in, you know, through the Holy Spirit, God's not gonna forsake us, but we can feel like, that relationship has been, uh, you know, just deeply hurt. And so uh, the only way that we can get it back is to repent of those behaviors 
to return to, again, seeking, uh, you know, diligently to make our calling and election sure, going back to repentance, reading the word, praying, pursuing, as Daniel said, applying it to our lives. You know, it doesn't, you can come to church, you can read all this, you can go through the motions, but if you go out there and committing adultery and murder and all that, yeah, it's going to be, you're going to feel that psychological disconnect between I come in here and I say one thing and then I go do another. And there are many believers who do that. And, and they have that feeling inside, that schizophrenic feeling. And, it, and it's good. You should feel that way. It shows that you are uh, trying to work in two different directions. So that's a very uh, common, again, scenario for why people lose their assurance is because they fall into certain behaviors that are incorrect. One of the reasons why, you know, in the Lord's Supper, we tell you um, that if, you know, if you are uh, repentant for your sins, then you come seeking strength and so on. But if, you know, if somewhere in the back of your mind, you've got, you know, hey, Lord, you are Lord of my life in 99%. But this is one little patch. I'm going to hang on to that. That's the one thing that's for me. I don't want to give up my anger. I don't want to give up my lust. I don't want to give up, uh, you know, my sloth or whatever, you know, it is that you, you're holding on to. It's not that you're wrestling with those things. Is that you're saying, Lord, you can be Lord over everything else. This one is mine. That should uh, strike within you a real chord of, you know, of, of dissonance, that things are not right in my life. And it's one of the reasons why we say do not partake of the Lord's Supper because we want to sort of shock you into realizing that relationship is, is broken. Uh, the person who sins and who seeks repentance and is looking for God working in their lives, that relationship is not broken. That's precisely the relationship that God expects us to have with him. So the life of the Christian is one of continual repentance and faith. We're looking at the person who for a time falls away, but he will not fall away forever because God never forsakes those whom he has called, which I want to talk about more as we get to perseverance. There's one last, uh, and I'm spending a long time here just because this is where a lot of people uh, wrestle with this stuff, but there is one last scenario in which people tend to lose their assurance, and that is for some believers who are of particularly sensitive consciences. And usually what I have found over the years in pastoral ministry is that the folks who wrestle with this, it's not something that comes and goes, but for the most part, it's just not there at all. And they have this for years. And they just really struggle with their own, uh, their, their awareness of their own sin and with whether God really loves them. And usually the, the, the reason for that there, and I want to be careful, I can maybe say this a little more bluntly in an academic teaching setting than I would if I was talking to the person directly. This is not, this, these are again true believers, but in most cases, the reason I discover that that's there is that they still have not comprehended in its fullness the grace of the gospel. You hear what I'm saying? So I'm not saying they're not believers, but the fullness of the grace of the gospel is something that they've not comprehended and embraced yet. There still is a very strong performance ethic running through their Christian life, and they wonder if they have matched up you know, with what God expects of them. And you can even hear in that language, right, uh, you know, I, they, they constantly feel that they're not worthy, and that usually betrays an uh, 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 imperfect understanding of the fact that our righteousness is not our own, that it comes wholly, entirely from what Jesus has done. And because of that, um, not that, that 
in you know imperfect comprehension. Um, they never really arrive at assurance because they're always still wondering uh, whether they've done enough and have I believed enough? Have I you know that kind of thing? So this also is much more common and probably is the hardest one of all to deal with because you have to kind of break through and help them to really get a hold of grace. One of the reasons we spent so much more time on adoption when we did is because it's one of the places where, you know, justification is absolutely vital, and we'll see that next week as we go through Reformation Sunday um, activities, and especially we're going to be looking at justification next week. It's a legal declaration. God declares you righteous. But adoption, where somebody is made a child of God, where they can be brought into God's favor and, and in a very personal and intimate way. The other, you know, you can receive somebody's favor legally. You can have a decision made for you in your favor. That doesn't mean the judge is going to come down and hug you and you're going to go out, you know, and have, you know, mimosas together and, you know, hang out. Right, but in adoption, this person wants to have a personal relationship with you that goes beyond just some legal declaration. So usually I find that folks that are wrestling with this have not fully imbibed, have not fully comprehended uh, the benefits of being, you know, an adopted child of God. They're still living very much like orphans um, kind of thing. Does that make sense? Okay, before we move on, any questions about assurance? Nope, all good. All right, if we look at the next two, we're going to take those together, peace and joy. Again, very subjective. Paul, uh, we won't spend as much time on this, but Paul constantly is talking about you know, that peace and that joy that comes from knowing God. Now, this peace of conscience uh, simply means, because, you know, what does that mean, peace? Oh, I feel peace. Peace of conscience means your conscience is at rest when, you know, you know that in your mind, doesn't mean that you recognize, oh, I have no sin, but I have trusted in Christ. I have, in other words, actually builds on assurance. I have trusted in Christ. I believe in him. I know he's covered over my sins. I know that I am forgiven. And that brings peace. Peace, uh, not just simply meaning calm, but you think of the relationship between you and God. It's not, a, it's not a relationship of enmity. You are at peace with God. Your conscience is at peace. You can rest knowing that your sins are forgiven. And the reason I lump that in, and most commentators lump that in with, uh, with joy and why the, the uh, catechism writers wrote one right after the other is because when you recognize those realities about what Jesus has done for you, it also brings joy that your sins really are forgiven, that you really are welcomed into the family, and so on. So uh, again, a very subjective aspect, but it comes to, again, as you pursue and as you um, diligently uh, study and pray and those kind of things, you realize this is real, what Jesus has done. This is what it covers, and it can put your mind at rest that your relationship is stable, that God hears you, that God cares for you, and your conscience could be at peace in terms of even your own sin. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not going to spend maybe too much time with that. Uh, earlier, whoever read Psalm 51, you know, we're talking about restore the joy of my salvation. And again, it's not that that is, um, it's not restore my salvation, it's restore the joy of it bring back that accompanying joy that comes with knowing that indeed we are forgiven. Okay, let's look at the last one with the time, 10 minutes that we have remaining. Uh, perseverance, actually the last two. Perseverance and grace. 
I'm going to put those together because, you know, perseverance is this idea that you will get to the finish line in your, in your walk with God. And so uh, increase in grace is what we're going to see is what the Spirit moves in you and consistently is working on you so that you can look at the way you started and look at the way you end and there really is a definitive growth in your character and so on. In other words, does God, in the process of sanctification, graciously, it, you know, when we talk about increase in grace, grace is not a thing, right? It's not like a, like a unit, right? You know, I, I'm going to have a, a, a five cubic feet of grace. Uh, you only have two cubic inches of it today, you know, that kind of. But we talk about it that way. In reality, grace is an attitude that God has. So when we really talk about an increase in grace, we're talking about God graciously working in us to increase our ability to behave in ways that are conforming to God's law and so on and so on, that kind of thing. Okay, let me ask you this question. I think most of you know the answer, but it's worth starting with that. Is it possible for the believer to fall away? Yes, no, I'm, I'm seeing very, like, mild, you know, like, yes, no, no definitive, yes, he can, no, she can't, no, nothing, nothing definitive. You'll take a stand on no, okay. Say again, Ann? No, so we got two no's, all right, that's good. So I'm going to say that there is a way and is a sense in which the believer can fall away, but the way in which he falls away is, according to the Second Peter passage, you can fall away in your diligence. You can fall away in your pursuit of those things that we ought to be doing. Your diligence and your faithfulness to God, you can fall away from that. Every single one of us has done that to a certain extent. Sometimes it can become very grievous, very egregious, and you know, lead to some significant things. We can all fall away from that. But no, in terms of God himself, um, us falling out of his mercy, out of his grace, and out of his uh, grip, no. In that regard, uh, absolutely not. Uh, um, Spurgeon uses an example. Well, actually, let's, let's read some scripture here. Uh, let's have somebody look up John 10, 28, and then I'll give the example. You can start looking it up, John 10, 28. Actually, and while we're doing that, uh, let me give you a couple of other John passages that other folks can start looking up. So John 10, 28, then let's have someone look up 1 John 2, 19, 1 John 2, 19, and 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9. So John 10, 28, 1 John 2, 19, 1 John 3, 9. And while we're doing that, uh, the example that Spurgeon gave was that of a man who's on a very, 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 like he called it, a great ship, uh, just a, a big boat. And the idea is that this boat is set up in such a way that nobody can fall overboard. You know, it's got, I don't know, high walls or whatever. But the idea is that you're not going to fall overboard, so you're never going to get off the boat, as it were. You're never going to lose being on that journey. However, on this big boat, you could fall down, Spurgeon would say, and you could, on the boat, trip and fall and, you know, scuff your knee or, you know, twist your ankle and that kind of stuff. And the idea there, of course, is on the big ship of salvation, you're never really going to fall off of it, but you could twist your ankle, metaphorically speaking, or that kind of stuff. 
you could not, again, fall away in terms of your own diligence and your own faithfulness. You could, in that regard, suffer much lesser setbacks, but you'll never be off the journey. And the point was that the boat will always make it to the destination. Even if you arrive all battered and bruised, you know, you're going to get there and, and that kind of thing. And that's actually not a bad example for, uh, for perseverance. Um, let's have whoever's got John 10, 28. Will you read that for us, please? All right. That's about as clear as it can be. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Notice that he's not just simply, uh, you know, pointing them to it, telling them about it. He actually is the one who, who gives us that life, that eternal life. And he says, none of them will perish. If you have eternal life, then you are guaranteed that you're not going to perish. And nobody can pluck them out, if that's the old language, or snatch them out of my hand. They can't be removed. So this is about as definitive uh, a passage in terms of us uh, not losing our salvation. Um, So perseverance in that regard. Yes. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So um, when you're you're in Hebrews 4, I'm presuming. In Hebrews 3, okay. Um, The author of Hebrews uh, several times talks about this very thing. And notice the language that he's using. He's, he's telling and calling us just like Peter to, to work this thing out. In fact, um, in just a moment here at the end, I'm going to be looking at what perseverance does not mean. Let me hold on to that because I'm going to bring that up when I talk about um, different ways in which perseverance can be misunderstood and uh, and. and when we're being called, just like in Peter, to make our, our election sure, it talks about the effort that we ourselves put in. What I'll say at this point is that that does not necessarily say that an actual believer will fall away, but that there are many people who can profess faith, and it looks like they're believers, but when you put them to the test, they're not. Hold on to that, because I'm going to address it in that section right there. That's coming up, so um, I can do it more fully at that point. So, and if I don't mention it, just raise your hand and remind me. So, okay. So Jesus very clearly making sure, make, making clear that uh, none is going to snatch them out. So there's the doctrine of of uh, perseverance. Um, uh, G.I. Williamson uses another illustration. You know, Spurgeon uses the boat. G.I. Williamson uses the idea of a runner, and so here you have a person who's a track. Uh, you know, a track and field person or whatever. She's a very good distance runner and she has great ability, natural ability, and the coach recognizes that natural ability and so on. The idea here is that natural ability is given to us by God as opposed to somebody like, you know, me, (laughs) you know, who doesn't have that natural ability and that kind of thing. So if you put the person who does not have the natural ability and the person who does have the natural ability side by side, so... There we go, yeah. But it, he recognized, Eric Little did, that God is the one who gave him the, that giftedness. But that, that runner, she still has to work at it. She still has to you know, hone her craft, that kind of thing, and she still has to uh, you know, um, give effort. She can't do it half-heartedly. She can't you know, not train. 
because then a person with lesser skill can indeed defeat her in the race. And so this dynamic that um, we see in perseverance is something that, um, well, for the remainder of our time, I want to focus on, which is that there is a sense in perseverance that even though it's the work of God in our hearts, we do, our, we do, we do contribute in the sense that we have effort that we have to put in. Again, the seeking out of the saints and fellowship and in worship, the reading of Scripture, the applying that scripture to ourselves. All these different things take effort. And just like that athlete, when she's preparing for her race, she has to do the, the hard work, so we too have to put in the hard work. And as we do those things, then we see that perseverance actually happening. So does that make sense, where we're going with that? Um, that leads to the three things that I want to end with, the three misconceptions about perseverance that are very common. Um, the first one, which probably in evangelical circles is not that big a deal, but certainly a, um, at least one generation ago when mainline churches were still pretending that they actually cared what Scripture says. And I say that because, you know, I grew up in the mainline church, and even up and through like the 80s and 90s, uh, they still were kind of turning to Scripture. Now it's just literally they, well, okay, that's a story for another day, but uh, one of the very common things was that perseverance meant that every person in the visible church would be saved. And, you know, in the PCUSA, in which I was in for a number of years and so on, it was not uncommon to, to look at TULIP, right, the five points of Calvin, and uh, the very last one, perseverance of the saints, and say, so you see all the people here, everybody who's in the church, no matter what you see or what's going on, they, God will eventually scoop them up and bring them to himself, and they will be saved. Uh, this idea that every last member of the visible church, just because they profess faith, will in fact um, or you know, attend worship or come to church or in some way be seen as part of the church that that person is, uh, is guaranteed to live. But Paul in Romans chapter 9 deals with, 9, 10, and 11, deals with Israel and he says not all Israel is Israel. Not every Jew is saved because while they are in the covenant, the visible covenant community, if they've not themselves been diligent in pursuing God and so on, then that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a true believer. And he's gonna, obviously he's applying that then uh, also to the, the church and that kind of thing. So um, who's got the First John 2.19 passage? Let's read that. This would be probably a good time. First John 2.19. Okay. So here's John saying there were people that were amongst us. They were in our very midst. As far as we can tell, they were professing Christians. They were just like us. But it turned out that this was a false profession. They were amongst us, but they ended up walking out away from us. They were no longer a part of us. They were, and it became clear, manifest, you know, that uh, they, they were not really of us. John is getting at the fact that there are many people who are professing Christians, but in the end, they're not actually folks who have put their trust in Christ and have a right relationship with him. And that then gets to what we're being told here. Because of that reality, you have these various passages that we're looking at, this Hebrews passage, Second Peter 1.10, and so on, that calls us to these things. When uh, Paul says, you know, unless you can confess Jesus as Lord, and he doesn't mean that, you know, I, I can go to an unbeliever and say, can you say these three words, Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. You know, that, it's not the... The saying of it. It's the saying of it and, you know, believing it. You really cannot live a certain way um, and, and for any length of time if you're really not a believer. So when we pursue these things, they become obvious. Um, in our own church, 
Uh, I've been here now 18 years. Thankfully, it's not a recurring thing. But we had an elder who, when I first arrived here, uh, I didn't think he made a very good elder and became obvious. Uh, there was a lot of things in his character that didn't seem to quite fit with what you wanted, not just in an elder, but just you know, a regular Christian. And he demitted the office of elder, and I thought that was a good thing. And then he walked away from the faith entirely. Said he never believed it. We had a, a man who was with us maybe for about three years uh, whose wife was here. And um, at one point he just said, I'm, I've got to stop. I've got to stop pretending. I, I love her and that's why I wanted to do this. But I don't really believe any of this. And he left her and he walked away and, you know, from the faith and everything. Those things do actually happen. Uh, when, I, when I got here initially in 2005, we immediately moved to do the church plant in Denton. And uh, we sent you know, a group of people away, and there was a, a man who went with them. And, uh, and, and he talked about um, uh, the church planter who we had put, you know, he still answered to us because um, uh, you know, the church was not yet self-supporting. So he still you know, answered to our session and so on. And he came and said, you know, Mr. X... Uh, is walking away from the faith. And he wrote this letter, and he's basically saying under the previous preacher whose preaching was really good, everything was so clear, and, and I loved the, um, loved the Reformed faith. It was so logical, so orderly, and I just fell in love with it. And then John came along, and he said, we have to live it. And I, I don't want that. So I went with, with Dave to, to Denton, and then Dave's doing the same thing, and I realized, oh, I just love the orderliness of all this, but I don't really want to live it out. And he walked away from the faith. It really does happen. There really are people who come into our midst. And, you know, the author of Hebrews is saying, be careful that you're not one of those. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. And the good news is every one of those have been people who have walked away, but there's also many, many examples of people that when they have been challenged to do that or to do what Peter says, to, to be diligent and faithful and making sure that they really are uh, believers, they realize, I am not a believer. What am I missing? And then they pursue it, and they arrive at it. Uh, one of the best examples of that is one of my professors, Steve Brown. Anybody ever heard of Steve Brown, Key Life Ministries? No? You're, uh, I, okay. That's because you're also intent on just listening to me. That's terrible. Uh, Key Life Ministries, look it up. It's really, really good. Steve Brown was a longtime radio personality in the, in the, uh, the 60s and 70s. And then he, I uh, don't remember all the details, but he became a Christian and, in fact, became a minister and uh, served in the New England area for many years. And at one point, he realized, I'm not a believer. <laughs> I don't believe any of this stuff. Uh, he did, in fact, become a believer and a very good one. And um, anyway, has led Key Life Ministries since the, the mid to late 80s, that kind of thing. Okay, all that just goes to show that this is a, uh, a real issue um, when somebody says, you know, everybody, that's what perseverance means, is that everybody in the visible church is going to be saved. No, it's very clear that some people do walk out. Okay, the other one, and this one we can deal with much more quickly, uh, is the common notion that perseverance means that I can now do whatever I want because my, you know, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and so now my behavior can be... You know, I can live like the devil because I have my, you know, get out of hell free card. The problem with that is if the Holy Spirit has really been at work in you and all these different things, 
you will not want to live in those ways. You will not want to pursue that kind of lifestyle. You are a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So that new creation comes with a whole new set of inclinations and desires and wants, and we want to follow our Lord. At times we fail, at times we, you know, we step away, but this continual kind of, I'm just going to live that way, that pretty much tells you Jesus is the one who uses the strongest language in this regard, that you're going to recognize them by their fruit. You can hang a little sign on an on a, on a apple tree and say it's a lemon tree, and just because you hang that little sign on there, guess what? It's going to still produce lemons, right? So, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to uh, uh, bear fruit according to its nature, to its actual nature. So, if you really are a believer, then you will not be living like the devil. You will not be doing whatever you want to do. Okay, the very last one uh, is that when we talk misconception about perseverance, again, not so much in our circles, well, maybe it's kind of worked its way in a little bit. But that's the idea that perseverance means that Jesus does all this stuff to save you, get you right up there, and then after that, it's up to you to continue on in your own strength. Actually, that, that does work its way into our own circles a whole lot. Um, for a lot of people, the, uh, the, the gospel is simply the entry into the Christian life. Understanding that, what Jesus, that Jesus does what you cannot do is what we need to become believers. But then they spend the rest of their Christian lives trying so hard to be good in their own strength. And one of the things that we have to realize, as David McWilliams would put it, is that we never mature beyond the cross. We never outgrow the gospel. We never get to a point where we say, I can do this in my own strength, I don't need the work of Christ. So that, you know, every day you need, you know, if you're gonna be a good mom, if you're gonna be a good husband, if you're gonna be a good brother, you need the work of Christ as much in your life and his enabling as much in your life now as you did when you were first a believer. So we never outgrow that. There's no doubt in everything we've been looking at, you know, the Second Peter passage and so on, that there is effort. There is human effort. But your ability to do that is because God enables you, because the Holy Spirit enables you. So he's the one who's there. He's the one who gives you the natural talent as the runner. He's the one who builds the ship that you're on. You know, all of those metaphors and examples that we've been using. So his is the primary work that enables you and equips you to put in that effort to be diligent and faithful and making sure that indeed you are one of God's people. So um, this idea that it's just you is wrong. And um, okay, it's 1010, I got to quit. Some of you have heard of uh, some of the movements that have been troubling churches in the last 20 years. Uh, One of those is called the New Perspectives on Paul. It's mostly been overseas. But here on this side, Federal Vision, has that at all rung any bells? Some of you guys might if you're on reform forums and so on. Hopefully you've not heard of it because, you know, you've been here. But uh, it's, it's actually something that has been sweeping through a number of PCA and OPC and RPCNA and, in fact, just reform churches in general. And like all these mistaken things, they come through, the church answers it, but in the process, they've scooped up some, some folks uh, along the way. So Federal Vision uh, has some very, very attractive things in it because it's calling people, hey, you, need, you really need to live out your faith. It takes, out, it takes that second objection very seriously, that perseverance means you can live however you want. And it says, no, no, you've got to. But then it assists her and says, 
you've got to perform, and if you don't perform, you can fall away from the covenant. And it's up to you to maintain that and so on. And that's become very prevalent. There's a whole denomination now that has been founded in the last uh, several decades called the CREC that, is, that came out of Federal Vision. So these things are real, and they really do uh, affect people. Okay, we're way out of time. Any last-minute questions or concerns or things that we need to, uh, to bring up? Oh, we didn't read the First John uh, 3.9. Who's got that one? Let's read that one. Okay, thank you. And what I wanted just to show there is that you do have that new nature, that seed that is within you, that spurs you to a, to, to a certain type of behavior. And so you will never be content uh, to be in a sinful lifestyle. But it also is that same uh, new nature, that seed within you that spurs you on. So that even as you do uh, apply yourself, it's all God's doing anyway. Okay, that's, that was that. Was there any questions or anything? All right, let's go ahead and and pray. And um, remember, next week, we all got to be here. We're going to start on time. This is a one-hour video, so we are starting on time at 9.15. Let's let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for everything that you have given to us, uh, including these wonderful benefits that we can have assurance, we can have uh, peace, we can have joy. We're thankful that you are increasingly gracious to us, moving us to uh, to be able to, to indeed uh, persevere and continue running the race in faith, as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12. We pray, Father, that because of that work, that you will indeed see us to the finish line. Help us, Father, if we wrestle with assurance, help us to be able to uh, read and to study and to uh, gain that assurance and gain that peace and gain that joy. And help us, Father, to have right views of what it means to persevere so that we don't become uh, lackadaisical nor... Um, uh, presumptuous. And we pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.